Let me encourage you to turn again tonight to the book of Revelation, and this time to the 8th and the ninth chapters. Revelation chapters 8 and 9. As you know, we've spent the last couple of weeks in the prior two chapters, Revelation chapters 6 and 7, considering what Jesus calls elsewhere the beginnings of the birth pains. These events that are not part and parcel of the end times, but that are common to our own day, to history in general, really. Wars and famines, disease, persecution, and so on. These things are written on the scroll, God's scroll of human history in chapter 6. And we see them unfolding as Jesus, the Lamb of God, takes that scroll into his hands and begins to break the seals on that scroll so that it unfolds into history as we know it. And he is sovereign over it all. The scroll is in his hands. He is the one that breaks the seals. Furthermore, during this time period, we've also seen God sealing his elect, chapter 7, putting his mark on his believing people, on his church, so that they will be kept by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last day. During this current era of wars and rumors of wars, of earthquakes and famines in many places, chapter 6, God is sending out the gospel of his beloved son, chapter 7, to every tongue and tribe and people and nation, bringing them to himself and sealing them for the day of redemption, ensuring that they will finish the course, that they will cross the tape and that no one will snatch them from Jesus' hand. You and I are living in this period, in this history that unfolds in Revelation 6 and 7. We are living in this age of God's gospel mercies. We're living in this age of the breaking of these seals on God's scroll of human history. At least we should say we're living in the era of the breaking of the first six seals. You'll recall from chapter 6 that the scroll of human history that has been unfolding in front of us, this scroll that the Father has placed in the hands of the Lamb, is sealed up with seven seals. But in chapter 6 and 7, as we read along, we found that only six of the seals so far have been opened. The seventh seal is not open until we come tonight to chapter 8. But when that seventh seal is open, when the scroll of history comes completely unfolded, a whole new series of events begin to be unfolded as well. Events that it seems to me in chapters 8 and 9 are yet future. Events that we sometimes refer to as the great tribulation, the great and final trials that are to be rained down on planet Earth. That's what we find tonight as we begin reading in chapter 8. So indeed, begin reading with me. And we'll read all the way through to the end of chapter 9. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. 
Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. The first sounded and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and they were thrown to the earth and a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters. The name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, And many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. The fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck, so that a third of them would be darkened, and the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet, and of the three angels who were about to sound. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. He opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and power was given to them as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, and death flees from them. The appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like the hair of women, and their teeth were like the teeth of lions. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots, of many horses rushing to battle. They have tails like scorpions and stings, and in their tails is their power to hurt men for five months. They have as king over them the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in the Greek he has the name Apollyon. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still coming after these things. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. One saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and year and month were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. The number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates the color of fire and of hyacinth and of brimstone. And the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions and out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. A third of man was killed by these three plagues, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which proceeded out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, 
for their tails are like serpents and have heads, and with them they do harm. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stones and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders nor of their sorceries nor of their immorality nor of their thefts. Father, as we consider these words, they are hard words but they are true words, and we pray that you would help us to have soft hearts to receive them and to know what we should do with them. God, uh, help us be like the men of Issachar in the Old Testament who understood the times and who knew what should be done. Help us to do this and to know these things, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've read about locusts, demons, with Satan, Apollyon, Abaddon at their head. We've read about an army of 200 million horsemen, a third of the earth's population wiped out, a third of the earth's produce destroyed, a third of the daylight blackened out, and so on. And I think you'll agree with me that we're no longer reading about events that are part and parcel of this present day. We're no longer reading about the beginnings of the birth pangs, as Jesus calls them. We're reading about the heat of the contractions. By the time we get to Revelation chapters 8 and 9, the end is very near. The coming of our king is very near indeed. As I said, the events that we're going to begin considering tonight are often referred to as the Great Tribulation. Now, it's true, as we said on Sunday, and as we've said earlier in the book of Revelation, in this world, you will have trouble. No matter when you live in human history, you will have tribulation in this world. But a day is coming on planet Earth, according to these chapters, when the furnace will be turned up seven times hotter. And as we read in chapter 9, verse 6, men will wish that they were dead and will not be able to find death. It seems to me that when we read Revelation chapters 8 and 9, we have arrived at that period. And as we consider these chapters, this great trouble that's coming upon the earth, let me first tell you tonight what we're not going to do. What we're not going to do. The temptation when you read chapters like this in the book of Revelation is to immediately focus in on the symbols and the colors and the signs and try to decipher all of them. So you have people, for instance, who focus in on the locusts, demons here in chapter 9 and pontificate, uh, for instance, that they must resemble some sort of modern-day battle helicopters. The overhead uh, propeller like a woman's hair, the iron breastplates, the missile launchers in the rear being what John says here in verse 10, that in their tails is their power to hurt men and so on. And fanciful as that may seem, you can do that with lots of details in the book of Revelation, can't you? You can look at all the details, you can read the news or go on Wikipedia or just type things into Google and find all sorts of ways to interpret the symbols and the details. But that's not what we're going to do tonight. That is not what we're going to do. Now, incidentally, we do need to understand that John is employing symbolic language in these chapters, these things do mean and symbolize something. 
These are symbols, not literal locusts, for instance. And the thing thrown into the sea in chapter 8, verse 8, is like a great mountain, we're told. And we see that word like occurring often in these chapters, reminding us that John is seeing a vision. He is portraying things for us in symbols. The locusts and the horses in chapter 9 can't be literal locusts and horses with faces like men and heads like lions and breathing fire and so on. So John is speaking in these chapters in largely symbolic language. We need to understand that. That's why people can look at the locusts and say they mean helicopters. But that's not to say that everything that John says, on the other hand, is merely allegory. He's speaking symbolically, but not everything he says is mere symbol or fable. I don't think he's speaking symbolically when he describes a third of the earth being burned up or a third of the sea being destroyed or men being in pain so that they wish that they would die. I don't think he's speaking symbolically when he describes a third of mankind being destroyed with the blast of the sixth trumpet and so on. I believe that the effects of these plagues will very literally happen, but when John describes the way in which those things will happen, when he describes the plagues that bring about those events, much of his language is symbolic, horses, locusts, something like a mountain, and so on. And if there's one thing that history teaches us regarding the symbolic, apocalyptic language in the book of Revelation, it is that we must never be too certain of our own interpretations of it. Many people have been certain that they've understood what these things mean and have proven themselves to look very foolish in the end. Indeed, if God wanted us to be certain of exactly what these locust demons symbolize or what they will be or who they will be, if God wanted us to be certain of exactly what it is that was tossed into the sea in Revelation 8.8 that looked like a mountain, he would have plainly told us exactly what we were looking at. Never forget that. God is not trying to trick you. When he wants you to know something for certain, he'll say it as plain as day. He who believes the Son has the life. He who does not believe the Son does not have the life. That's plain and simple, isn't it? But when God speaks in symbolic language, it means that he's giving you a general picture, and he doesn't necessarily want you to know the exact detail. The fact that he's spoken to us about these great plagues in the language of symbol here, therefore, means that he wants us to focus on principle and application rather than on exact end times detail. Principle and application, that's what symbols give to us. God is more concerned that we understand that great trials are coming and that we be adequately prepared for them than he is that we know exactly what quarters they're going to come from. It's more important, for instance, that you understand that massive amounts of people are going to suffer and perish in the Great Tribulation, chapter 9, verse 18, and therefore that you be diligent with the gospel before they do, than it is for you to understand why the horsemen who do the killing have the color of hyacinth on their breastplates. You see that? The fact that people are perishing is more important than the color of the horses. So tonight, we're going to focus on the big principles and the applications that go with them rather than on the detailed symbolic interpretations. 
Again, that's not to say that all these symbolic details have no importance. They surely do or they wouldn't be in the text. But if I tried to unfold them for you tonight, there's a 99% chance that I would be wrong. And more importantly, if we're going to do an intro study like this, we need to let the plain things be the main things and the main things be the plain things. And so before we worry about the hair on these locust heads or whether the horsemen in chapter 9 are communist tanks or whatever it is that we may have heard before, we need to find out what are the main things here. So that's the big question tonight. What are the main things in Revelation 8 and 9? What are the main things as we think about this great trial that's coming upon the world? Well, let me give you four big picture principles. That's how we'll proceed tonight. Four big picture principles. First and most obvious, there will be a great tribulation. There will be a time of great trial on the earth. Just because the language of chapters 8 and 9 is symbolic and apocalyptic doesn't mean that these events are mere science fiction. It would be easy to read this as though these things were too far-fetched to ever possibly be true, or at least not in our, in our lifetime, but far from it. Though we don't know exactly what these symbols all may entail, that doesn't mean that these things are make-believe or that they're mere fables. As I said, while the locusts and the horses may be symbolic, the destruction that they wreak on the planet is going to be very real. And I firmly believe a day is coming when, as we read here, crops will burn, seas will be ruined, a third of mankind will be killed. I believe in what Jesus called a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now and never will again, Matthew 24. I think that's what John is describing here. Something that's never been before, something that never will be again because it will conclude with Christ's return and a new heaven's and a new earth. John is describing here, though, that great tribulation that accompanies these seven great trumpet blasts here in Revelation 8 and 9. Just walk through them briefly so that you're reminded of what he describes, and then we'll try to draw some application from it. Just look first, the first trumpet blows in verse 7, and coming with it is hail and fire mixed with blood, so that a third of the earth and the trees and so on are burned up. Perhaps this is a literal description of a, a, an electrical storm like we've never seen that sets the earth ablaze and, and sheds blood that, so that a third of the crops are burned up. We're not sure, but that's the first plague. The second trumpet blows in verses 8 and 9, and there is another great plague, this time on the salt waters. Something like a mountain, we're not sure exactly what it is, but something ruins a third of the salt water. And then in verses 10 and 11, a star, whether literal or whether this is figurative, it must be figurative because stars are not actual bodies that can fall, but something falls into the fresh waters and poisons them, the rivers and the springs. And then in verse 12, the sun, moon, and stars, again, are afflicted, a third of them. And so we have the earth, the salt waters, the fresh waters, the heavens. And then in chapter 9, verses 1 through 11, the fifth trumpet blows. And we read about those famous locusts uh, that seem to be not helicopters, but demons. You see that the one who lets them out of the pit is 
the great star who fell from heaven, who's described as a hymn in verse 1. That must be Satan, and we're told in verse 11 that that's exactly who it is. And they come up out of the abyss, out of hell, it would seem. These are some sort of demonic beings, whether they're demonic beings working in physical beings or not, we're not told. But as we read, they're going to reap incredible physical pain from the earth, and yet not deadly pain. Look at verses 5 and 6. They were not permitted to kill anyone but to torment for five months. Verse 6, In those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, and death flees from them. That's one of the worst descriptions of these times that I think we have. Verses 12 to 19, Then the sixth angel blows his trumpet, and four other angels are unleashed, And they themselves seem to unleash a massive army of horse-like beings. Are they horse-like beings? Are they symbolic of something else? Are they demonic creatures? We're not sure, but we're told that they will wage war in the earth and that a third of mankind will be killed in all this fighting. A third of the earth, a third of the salt waters, a third of the fresh waters, a third of the sky and a third of mankind. That pretty much covers the things that Genesis 1 tells us that God has made. All the earth and all the creatures on it are going to be ravaged in these days. And the point that I'm trying to make here is that this is not fable. These are not mere stories that teach us a spiritual lesson so that we go, aha, God is angry at sin, and so we should repent. That's true, But the reason we know that's true from these stories is because God is really going to do these things. Whatever the symbols may mean, God is going to do these things. Nor are these events necessarily remote way out in the future. Most of us probably don't have a problem thinking that these are real events, but we don't think of them as potentially imminent events. We think of them as something way out there that would never happen to me. This is the stuff that we see in the movies that's happening way out in the future with all the futuristic things that go with it in those Hollywood tales. But no, the truth is we don't know when this will happen. Just as we don't know the day or the hour when Christ will return, we don't know when these things will come upon the earth. These trumpets could be in the hands of the angels tonight. We could be sitting tonight in that great period of silence that we read about in verse 1, just before the trumpets are blown. We don't know exactly when these things will take place, and we don't know how, but amidst all the symbolic language and Even with a lack of a timeline, we must assert John is describing real events that will take place perhaps sooner than we think. And if all these things are really going to take place, here's really the big application point tonight. If all these things are really going to take place, if there really will be a time of trouble in the earth such as has never been and never will be again, and if it could be sooner than we think, then what are you going to do about it? Or to put it in the words of the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 3.11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you be? That's an important question. 
if these are real events. If they're way out in the future, you don't have to think about it. But if these are real events that could come upon the earth in our days, what sort of people ought we be? How ought you and I to live seeing that Revelation 8 and 9 are on the horizon? Are we prepared for these things? Are you on the right side in this cosmic struggle? There are only two sides here. Whose side are you on? Do you know that should you die in these struggles, or should you die tonight, that you will go to be with Jesus? Do you know that your children and your neighbors and your co-workers would go to be with Jesus if they were a part of the one-third who left this world in verse 18? Are you holding loosely enough to the things of this world so that you won't be totally undone if Revelation 8 should unfold this summer and you lose your earthly all. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, if Revelation 8 and 9 really are going to happen, what sort of people ought you be, Peter asks. And as we move along tonight, I want you to keep that question in your mind. We're going to come back to it again and again and again. I'm going to give you three more general principles regarding these chapters and three corresponding what sort of people ought you be kind of applications. The first of the basic principles, the general principles from this passage is that there will be a great tribulation. But secondly, notice that God's people will live through it. God's people will live through these days. There will be a great tribulation and God's people will live through it. In other words, contrary to the prevailing teaching of the last several decades in the American church, the great tribulation is not somebody else's problem out in the future. Christians are not, according to these chapters, going to be raptured away before all this begins. God's people will live through these difficult days. If you and I are alive, On planet earth, when these days come, God is not going to scoop us out of the fray. He's going to expect us to live by faith through it, just like he expects us to live by faith through our difficulties now. Our being caught up in the air to be always with the Lord will not take place until the end of this period of suffering. And I want to give you three reasons why that seems certain to me from this book of Revelation. The third one will come from these very chapters. And I'll begin with the most general reason and move to the most specific. First, remember that one of the great purposes of this book is to encourage believers to press on in their suffering. John originally handed this book off to Christians in Asia Minor who were suffering fiercely for their faith, and he gave it to them. God gave it to him, and he gave it to them to remind them God is sovereign over history. Jesus holds the scroll in his hands even when it unfolds and reveals suffering in your life. God is sovereign. You press on in the midst of your suffering knowing that God is sovereign. That's what this book is about. Press on in your suffering because God is sovereign. And not only is that true for the Christians in Asia Minor, but it's true for us as well. This book is to encourage us to press on in our suffering. And it would be strange 
than if only the first seven chapters applied to us and to those Christians in Asia Minor. That would be the case if we believe that we were going to be raptured off of the earth before the trials in Revelation 8. If Christians were no longer in the earth beginning with Revelation 8, we wouldn't need Revelation 8, 9, 10, and forward, would we? We wouldn't need the rest of this book. We wouldn't need the encouragements that it gives us to suffer well beyond what's in the first few chapters. But if we may well live through the tribulation, and if we don't know when that time will be, then we all need to be prepared, which is exactly why we have chapters 8 and 9 and forward in the book to help us be prepared for what's coming on the earth. But then there's another even more specific reason why it's very clear that Christians, according to Revelation, will be living through this great tribulation. And you'll see it if you remember that we've been studying this book for many weeks now, and we've read every single chapter and every single verse up until this point through chapter 9, verse 21. We've tried to look carefully at the major emphases in those first nine chapters. And having read every verse and looked carefully at all the major themes, we've been given no hint up until this point at all of God rapturing his people out of the world. Just think back in your mind to what we've read and you'll see that we've not seen anything like that. We've not seen yet what Paul describes in 1 Thessalonians 4. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. We've not seen that. With the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise. We've not seen that yet. And we who are alive and remain will be caught up with them in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. We've not seen those things happen yet. The trumpets begin blowing here in chapter 8. But we haven't yet seen the Lord descend or the church ascend. In fact, we won't see either of those things until we get to chapter 14. Which is at the end of this period of tribulation. And I conclude, therefore, that John is letting us know that Christians will be left on the earth until these trials are almost over, all through this period of tribulation that we're reading about here in chapters 8 and 9. Now, some people would say, well, we have seen the rapture of the church back in chapter 7, when those 144,000 people were sealed and God was protecting them before the trials came. That surely must mean that they were being taken out of the midst of the troubles. We saw them being sealed. We saw God holding back the winds of the tribulation until they were sealed. And it would be easy to assume then that the reason why they were sealed before the troubles came is because that sealing and protection would mean that they wouldn't have to face the troubles, that they would be raptured somehow between chapter 7 and chapter 8. But that can't be so because we've seen, and this is the third thing, here tonight in chapter 9, verse 4, that those people who were sealed are still around on the earth living through the plagues that we've described in these chapters. Do you see them there in verse 4? They're mentioned as a side note, but the scorpion-like locusts are told not to hurt the grass, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. You see the reverse implication of that? 
if they're said, they say you can hurt these people, but not these people, both sets of people are on the earth, aren't they? The sealed ones from chapter 7, the 144,000 who represent all the tribes of God's people are on the earth still. They're being protected, yes, from the sting of the locusts, but there's no sense given that they're being protected from the rest of the troubles that we've read about. They're sealed for the day of redemption so that they will surely make it without losing their faith. But that hasn't exempted them from living through these times of trial. And so it seems plain to me to say that God's people who are alive when the earth reaches these heavy days will remain on the earth during them and live through the great tribulation. That's the second principle. And again, along with that principle comes the question, if that is so, since these things are to be destroyed in this way, and since we may live to see it all unfold, what sort of people ought we be? There are many things we could say, but let me just plead with you in the first place to hold loosely to the things of this world. We said this on Sunday, didn't we? We say it again tonight. Hold loosely to the things that the locusts can destroy. Even if you die at a ripe old age, full of years and happiness, you can't take your job with you. You can't take your house with you. You can't take your iPhone with you or your bank account. But you know, even more than that, it's one thing to die and to leave all that stuff behind, but it's another thing to lose it while you're still alive. It's one thing to leave this world the way that you came in, naked. But it's another thing to be stripped naked while you're still alive, isn't it? Much more difficult, much more challenging to lose everything now. But if what we read back in Revelation 6 is true, that this present world is racked with calamity and loss, then we need to prepare for the possibility that the fire or the job loss, or the economic depression could come to us. And if it's possible that we could live beyond Revelation 6, which I'm saying tonight, and on into Revelation 8 and 9, then our chances of suffering and losing increase exponentially, don't they? And the question I'm asking is, am I prepared for that? And are you prepared to lose what the people in chapters 8 and 9 lose? None of us are prepared fully, I know, and we'll have to rely on God's grace in that moment. But do we hold with a loose grip the things of this world so that if we lose them, it's not as big a deal as it will be for our neighbors? Are we investing our time and our energy into things that will outlast all of these troubles. Just to give you a a small for instance that's really not that big of a deal, but struck me in my own life last night. Last night I spent 45 minutes trying to decide if I wanted the New Balance tennis shoes with the gray uh, stripes or with the green or with the red. And I'm glad for shoes. They're good shoes. They're going to do me well. I still haven't decided what color I wanted. But I was trying to decide which ones would look coolest. Without it ever occurring to me, so what? They're going to burn up. 
So are my clothes. So is my reputation. Everything's going to be gone except what matters in the kingdom. And the point I'm trying to make is on small things like that, but on big things, we need to be much more sober than we are about the stuff of this life. We need to hold to it much more loosely. We need to be much less concerned about this present world than we so often are, especially if Revelation chapters 8 and 9 are in our future. So then, there will be a great tribulation, and God's people will live through it. Now, thirdly, let me say that God's people will hasten it with their prayers. God's people will hasten these days with their prayers. Let me show you something I never noticed before until I was studying for tonight. And I noticed it in verses 3, 4, and 5 of chapter 8. Notice there, in verse 3, the location of the prayers of the saints. The prayers of the saints there are pictured as being on the altar before God's throne. Do you see that? The prayers of the saints are on the altar, mixing with this angelic incense so that they rise up in front of God's face as a sweet-smelling aroma. Now, as an aside, that's a beautiful picture, isn't it, of your prayers? You pray in Jesus' name, you pray in faith, and your prayers are like a sweet-smelling aroma to your Heavenly Father, rising right in front of His throne. He smells them. He hears them. He loves to answer your prayers. File this picture, verses 3 and 4, away in your memory bank. Your prayers are like a sweet-smelling aroma in the nostrils of your Heavenly Father. He never says, oh, it's, it's her again. He loves when our prayers come. But then to our point, notice as we read on into verse 5 that it's from the very same altar that the prayers are placed upon that the angel takes a censer full of fiery coals and throws it onto the earth, signifying the beginning of the plagues that follow. So notice the juxtaposition. The prayers of God's people and the fires of the great tribulation are mixed on the same altar. That's not by accident. I believe that John is trying to show us something here. Namely, he's trying to show us that the fiery judgments of the great tribulation are fueled by the prayers of the saints that are laid on the same altar. God's people pray in verse 4, and fire falls on the earth in verse 5. That almost doesn't sound right, does it? That we would pray and that God would destroy the earth like this. But that, I think, is certainly what John is picturing in these verses. The prayers of the saints and the fires of God's judgment upon the earth come from one and the same altar. And the judgments in verse 5 seem to be God's response to the prayers in verse 4. And if that's the case, we should ask, how can that be? How can our prayers be fueling these end times judgments of God. Are we supposed to be praying that God would send these locust demons on the earth? Are we supposed to ask God to kill one-third of mankind? I don't think that's the point. But do you remember in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, when we read about the martyrs who seem to be under this same altar? Look at chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, and particularly... Verse 10, what are the martyrs praying in chapter 6, verse 10? 
How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long until you avenge the wrong that was done to your people? That's some prayer, isn't it? But it's not unique. The Psalms are filled with these kinds of prayers if you read them. And it may not seem right to us at first to pray in this way. God, avenge the blood of your suffering people. Slay your enemies, God. It may not seem right for us to pray that way, especially because we know that the New Testament, as well as the Old, are constantly reminding God's people about the dangers of revenge. But the reason why we're constantly being warned about revenge is not because revenge is not necessary. The reason we are being warned about revenge throughout the Scriptures is because vengeance is mine saith the Lord. And therefore, while it is always wrong for us to take our own revenge, it's not wrong for God to take His. And it's not wrong in places for us to pray that God would take His. It's not wrong for us to join the martyrs who say, How long, O Lord, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? God will answer that prayer. Sometimes, as in the case of the Waurani Indians in Ecuador who murdered Nate Saint and Jim Elliott and the others, sometimes the persecutors find that God has avenged their deeds on the back of his own beloved son. Praise the Lord, so that they come in repentance and faith to him. But that's not always the case. That's not usually the case with people who persecute the church and so there is a reckoning for those who harm God's people God will get them and one of the great moments of that reckoning will be in these final days of planet earth as God pours out these trumpet judgments God will answer the prayers of Revelation 6:10 in that day the prayers of the suffering saints will rise like incense on the altar in that day and the angel will take the fire of God's wrath aroused by those prayers and he will cast it upon the earth here in verse 5 God loves his people that much that he will fight for them until the end That's not simply an Old Testament concept that God fights for his people. God in these days will fight for his people and he will wreak vengeance on those who have harmed him. God will do that for you if you're his child. And you should take comfort in that and not need to seek your own revenge if you've been persecuted or abused in some way. The harm done to you will not go unavenged. It has either been avenged already on the back of Jesus so that your enemies will repent and will be, as John Newton says, more precious to you in heaven than even your closest earthly friend is now. Or if they don't repent, the harm done to you will someday be avenged by God's wrath upon the ungodly as we read it here, perhaps in response to your own cries and prayers. Our prayers can hasten these judgments of God along. That's the third point. And they hasten God's judgment along, not only as we pray about the judgment itself, but also, just skipping ahead a little bit, as we pray the way we're taught to pray in the final chapter of this book. Do you remember the great prayer at the end of this book? Just three English words. Come, Lord Jesus. You ever pray that way? Do you ever just 
turn your eyes upon Jesus and say, Lord, I know that for you a thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. I know for you it hasn't been long at all, but from our vantage point, we've been waiting a long time for you to avenge your martyrs, and we've been waiting a long time to see your face. We long to see your face. We long to place our hands in your nail-printed hands. We long to feel your embrace. We long to tell you thank you face to face. Come, Lord Jesus. Do you ever pray like that? Just pleading for the second coming? I don't often pray that way. But I should, according to the book of Revelation. I should, by my prayer, 2 Peter 3, look for and hasten the coming of Jesus. And yet, back to Revelation chapter 8. If, by my prayers, I am hastening the coming of Jesus then let's remember that the coming of Jesus will hasten the coming of these trials upon the earth. But it will be worth it if we live through these days and get to see Jesus at the end. Isn't that what we're living for after all? For that day when we'll see him as he is, for that day when we will know him fully, even as we've been fully known, when we will be able to embrace him and underneath very physically will be the everlasting arms. Isn't that what we live for? It's exactly what we live for. So how could we not pray that God would haste the day when the faith will be sight, that day when the clouds will be rolled back as a scroll and the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend? That's the day that we long to see even if we have to go through the fires of Revelation 8 and 9 to get there. So what sort of people ought we be in the light of these coming troubles? People who, according to 2 Peter 3, 12, look for and hasten the coming of the day of God. That's his answer. What sort of people ought we be? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God with our prayers rising before God's throne like incense. How long, O Lord? Come, Lord Jesus. That's the third of four general principles tonight. There will be a great tribulation. God's people will live through it, and they will also hasten it with their prayers. And now, fourthly and finally, we should say that the great tribulation will not be a time of great revival. The Great Tribulation will not be a time of great revival. We might actually presume the opposite, just scanning through these chapters. We might say to ourselves, all these judgments are going to come raining down upon the earth, the crops are going to fail, the seas are going to be poisoned, the heavens are going to be darkened, billions of people are going to be dying. Surely, amidst all of that trouble, people are going to turn to God in massive numbers. Surely it will be like the days of Joel. They'll consecrate a fast. They'll proclaim a solemn assembly. They'll weep between the porch and the altar. The, the priests and the elders and the common people, they'll all come to the Lord and they'll pray and they'll repent. Surely that's what's going to happen in these days of locusts and demons and so on. That might be what we would presume, I say, and some people believe that that will be one of the great characteristics of these last days of the planet. Many, many people turning to Jesus amidst these troubles. And I wish that we could preach that it were true, but chapter 9, verses 20 and 21 portrays a situation that is precisely the opposite, doesn't it? 
even with all the death and destruction, even with all the reasons to repent, what do we read there? The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. That's sobering, isn't it? It's a testament to the hardness of men's hearts. We see this hardness in small form even now, don't we? Anytime there's a great tragedy in the news, whether it's a local tragedy or a national tragedy, or perhaps just a personal tragedy that you know someone going through, we always expect that people in those moments will be spiritually sensitive and concerned. And some of them are. Some of you perhaps came to Christ because of some period like that in your life. But if you've watched and observed over a long period of time, you've noticed that the vast majority of people that we think will be spiritually sensitive and concerned either are for a season and then fade away or they just try to put their heads down and make do and get back to normal as quickly as they can. And so it will be on a vast scale in the final months of the world as we know it. The rest of mankind did not repent of the works of their hands. Like Pharaoh, they hardened their hearts once more. I don't know if John is arguing here exclusively that no individual period will repent in those days or if he's just making a general statement about the vast majority. But either way, the great tribulation, he's telling us here, will not be a great day for soul winning. These will be days of hard hearts and hard ground for sowing the good seed. And it almost seems... I hope we say this respectfully, but it almost seems as though God is content to leave it that way in these chapters and as we read forward. Anytime God wants, he can remove a heart of stone, can he not? And replace it with a heart of flesh. That's in God's hands. He can do that anytime he pleases, and we hold out hope that he will do that for some people in those last days. But it doesn't seem to be the order of the day here in chapters 8 and 9, does it? God, at this point, seems to have left these people in their hardness. He has shifted his primary purpose in the world from mercy and gospel, which is where we live, to judgment and death in these days of tribulation. In these chapters, the day of grace, as we know it, seems to be drawing to its sunset. And so I say to you, the great tribulation will not be a time of great revival. And yet, when the world is perishing, that's when the world needs revival most, isn't it? When billions of people are perishing, as we read in this chapter, a great awakening is what the world needs most. Billions of people will die during the course of this one biblical chapter, and everyone else will at the end of those days who's not a believer. And what they need most, these people, is a great season of gospel blessing and mercy, like we read about in the days of Wesley and Whitfield, like we read about 
in all sorts of history, like we read about in the Pentecost and read about in the days of Hezekiah in times of old. That's what they need is a season of gospel blessing and mercy. And yet we're told concerning these dark days of the tribulation not to expect that in the least. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. And do you know what that means? If the lost people all around us are not going to be swept in the kingdom by some great tribulation time revival, if we don't have a tribulation awakening to fall back on in hopes that our neighbors will be saved, we'd better pray that revival comes now. We'd better pray for a global awakening today. We'd better pray for an awakening in our city today before it's too late. And we'd better be busy proclaiming the gospel now before those final days set in and the window begins to close when people will no longer repent. Who do you know? Whose soul ought you be fasting and praying for? And with whom ought you to be sharing Jesus? Please don't drag your feet until the opportunity is gone. Please don't drag your feet until Revelation 9 has come. A day is coming when men and women, because of the hardness of their hearts, will not repent. Night is falling upon the earth. And therefore, Jesus says, we must work while it's still today. For the night is coming when no one can work. The night is coming when gospel work will come to a near standstill. The night is coming when men's ears shut tight already, will be almost completely closed. The night is coming when their hearts will be as hard as stone. The night is coming when the purposes of God will have shifted from gospel and mercy to judgment and death. The night is coming when the trumpeting of the joyful sound that we hear when we come into this room will be replaced by the trumpet of God's great judgments upon the earth. The night is coming. So we must work while it's still today. We must work in earnest prayer and fasting for souls and for a great awakening in our world. And we must work earnestly at spreading the good news of this lamb that was slain. And I plead with you and with myself that we not drag our feet. And I plead with you finally, if you are not yet a Christian, not to trifle with your soul. If you're a child who's here tonight and is unconverted, or if you're an adult here tonight who is unconverted, do not become one of the people at the end of Revelation chapter 9. Don't allow your heart to be hardened. Don't fritter away these days of God's mercy. Who knows when you'll have another opportunity to hear about the Lamb who is slain. Don't keep moseying past the open door to paradise, assuming that someday, when you get time, you'll cross the threshold. Night is coming when the doors will be shut and the house will be locked tight. So repent now. Turn to Jesus tonight. Mingle your prayers even this moment with these saints in Revelation chapter 8. And say to God, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner.